Hello, hello. It's Editing Kyla popping in to wish you a happy day after Labor Day. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to urge everybody to see if you can find a climate strike in your neighborhood sometime on September 15th to 17th. In Vancouver, I believe the climate strike is happening on Friday the 15th. But if you're not one of my neighbors, then you should check out the climate strikes happening near you. On we go. Welcome to Pullback, a podcast where we normally discuss big solutions to big problems, but we are on vacation right now, so you are joining us for our summer book club. Yay! Vacation, (laughs) Kristen and Carla. Got no problems. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. My name is Kyla. Uh, I'm here with my co-host, Kristen. We're on vacation. We're having a great time. Kristen, how are you? (laughs) <laughs> it was an audio medium. I just made a face. Uh, <laughs> she shrugged, and I was like, "Great, yeah, same." <laughs> We're here to introduce uh, our book this week, which is "A Good War: Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency" by Seth Klein. We did it for the Second World War. We can do it again. Is the tagline. And Kristen, you actually you spoke with the author for this book, and I I got to kind of listen in as the editor for this episode and eavesdrop on the discussion that you guys had, and it was really interesting. I actually really liked this interview that you had with him. So thanks for doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I can drop some news here. Like I've been working on an audio series that will hopefully be coming out sometime next year. We're looking at climate change and inequality. And since we're doing a book club, I interviewed Seth Klein for part of that project, but we figured why not drop like a little preview here uh, with the interview that I did with Seth Klein. I think it's a really interesting book. He, He talks about it in the interview, but essentially the idea is We've been trying to find these historical comparisons that can give us a good framework for how to take action on climate change. And one potential way to do that is to think about how society came together as part of the war effort. So in the book, Seth looks at some of the initiatives that we had during the war that might be useful to help address the climate crisis. Things like having a youth climate core that really gets a high level of engagement um, so that you know, disaffected Zoomers can actually participate in climate solutions and get paid for doing so. That sounds like a great idea to me. Yeah, no, I actually, I really loved this part when he was talking about that. Well, first of all, our listeners are going to find out very soon that Seth Klein is incredibly eloquent. And I like these ideas. I like the idea of mobilizing on a wartime scale because that's what we need to be doing. And I really like the example of the Second World War as proof of concept that like when society is being drawn together, it's possible for like big change to happen. And it's not just like during the war, but like the idea that society has to come together to meet a common cause. It doesn't need to be as grim as the Second World War. It could be a lot more hopeful. And I think one of the things that Seth Klein acknowledges in his book is that like, we don't want to glorify war. But You can still draw really useful historical lessons from the Second World War as an example. So why not do so for the challenge of our time? 
Yeah. And also, you know, fascism is making a comeback. So probably World War II is is relevant in a couple of different ways. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. Well, on that note, everyone enjoy this interview. So thank you so much for, for talking to me, Seth. Let's start by talking about your book, A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. Um, So the book in general argues that Canada needs to mobilize sort of the same way we did in the Second World War for the climate emergency. Um, But I'm curious, what sort of motivated you to write this book and why is World War II a good analogy for the climate crisis? Mm -hmm. Well, when I began the book project, I wanted to write a book motivated as much as anything by my growing anxiety about the climate crisis. And I wanted to write a book that would tackle what do we do about this increasingly harrowing gap between what the climate scientists are saying we need to do and what our politics seems prepared to entertain. And I had some ideas about that. And I knew all along that the interconnection with inequality figured within it. But in the original book outline, there was only going to be a single chapter on the Second World War. Mostly I had been intrigued by this idea for all of us who have this you know, voice in our head that says, can we really retool everything in the space of just a few years with this narrow window of time we have remaining? I thought, well, let's dig into the World War II story because we sort of did that. But the more I dug into that research, the more I saw more and more parallels in terms of not just retooling the economy, but the role of labor and how we paid for it and what we did for returning soldiers and how we marshaled public opinion, the connections with inequality, the role of indigenous people, the role of young people, and and ultimately decided to rewrite the whole book outline structured around lessons from the Second World War. Wow, that's really cool. Um, I'm curious, like, uh, so what are some of the the key lessons that you think we could take from the Second World War to addressing the climate crisis? Well, for me, the most transformative thing to come out of the research was, and I had been on the climate file for many years, Mm -hmm. that it was forcing me to look at this material through fresh eyes, through the lens of emergency. As I was digging in, I was going, oh, this is what it looks and sounds and feels like to actually be in emergency mode. And appreciate for a moment that all of this was pre-COVID pandemic when I was doing that research and writing. And I started to slowly see certain themes emerge, like uh, that we that we now employ it as a framework for emergency in the climate emergency unit, which is you spend what it takes to win. Because in the war, they, there was no concern about what it would cost. They just spent Secondly, you create new economic institutions to actually get the job done. When I look at what's not working in our current approach to climate, I I feel like a huge amount of it is that we're stuck in this mode of trying to incentivize our way to victory. Carbon pricing, tax incentives, consumer rebates, all of which will have some impact, but not at speed and scale. Whereas in the war, we created all of these new institutions to get the job done, in particular, all these new uh, public or crown enterprises. 28 of them were created during the the Second World War. Because if you're not creating those new institutions, the best you can do is try to incentivize somebody else to step up and do what needs doing instead of just doing it yourself. A third key indicator 
is that you move from voluntary measures to mandatory measures as needed. A fourth is that you tell the truth about the severity of the crisis and what's needed to confront it. A fifth, related very much to your topic, is a commitment to leave no one behind. You understand that that to truly mobilize a society requires social solidarity. And inequality is toxic to social solidarity. It undermines that call to mobilize together. And a sixth marker is the role of Indigenous leadership rights and title. So all of these emerged from the study of the Second World War. Yeah, I'm wondering if we could dig a little bit into some of those different indicators. Um, First on sort of the spending question, like what do you think really would be the scale of spending that would be needed to address the the crisis properly? And, And how far are we from meeting that benchmark? I mean, a number of economists, most notably Sir Nicholas Stern, has said that if if countries are really going to meet the moment on climate, we should be spending 2% of GDP on climate actions and climate infrastructure. In Canada, currently, that would amount to about $57 billion a year. We are spending nothing close to that. Generously, if you were to tally up what the federal government is doing, it would clock in at around $12 billion a year. So we're underspending by a four to five fold order of magnitude. That gives you some indication of how much more spending. But by the way, if we were to spend at that level, we would still be spending considerably less than we did in the first year of the pandemic and dramatically less than we did in the war. So while I'm pulling on these lessons from other emergencies, the truth of the matter is, is that what's required to meet climate is less than what we did on those other occasions. That's sort of surprising given that it's a pretty substantial transformation. Um, But I'm curious about sort of like, given that there's this pretty substantial gap, what do you think we're missing um, by not spending uh, enough? You know, does that put us in sort of a certain trap in terms of how we approach the climate crisis? Uh, Yes. Well, well, first of all, we're, we're simply not at speed and scale. I mean, I guess I would ask you and your listeners, is there anything about the current approach and response that looks and sounds and feels like a genuine emergency response? Is there any part of it that that feels like we are being invited to join in a grand societal undertaking? Mm-hmm. And I would say no. To all, most of us would say no. And yet that's what's required in the face of an emergency. And, uh, you know, Bill McKibben's has a phrase that that resonates with me, which is to win slowly on climate is to lose. We're losing. You know, when you look at the approach the government is taking, I think we're going to start to slowly see a bending of the curve on our GHG emissions, but not at the pitch that the science says is required. And there's no comfort in that. Uh, it, it just delays the catastrophes by by a few years. Uh, So that's the most immediate cost. Um, There's all kinds of financial costs, as well as human costs of failing to make these investments. But also, I I would come back to my earlier point, our governments are stuck. And I would say they're stuck in a kind of neoliberal straitjacket. Like, why aren't they spending what they need to to win? Why aren't they creating new public institutions to get the job done? It's because they accept these neoliberal zombie ideas about what is and isn't allowed. And as a consequence, again, they're stuck in a in a place where the best they can do is try to leverage or incentivize 
private sector spending. And they will to a certain extent, but not at speed and scale. Like, for example, one of the big spends that the federal government has just done is a $12 billion expenditure to land a big battery factory in Ontario from Volkswagen, electric battery production. Now, that's great at some level. But the thing is, Volkswagen was going to make that investment. We just spent $13 billion outbidding the Americans instead of using our resources to actually create activity that wasn't otherwise going to happen. And that's what we should be doing. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that sort of highlights as well how um, it's not just sort of like increasing the scale of spending, but also reimagining what's possible. And you make the case in the book that, um, you know, there was a widening of possibilities in World War II. Uh, but I think the the COVID pandemic is also a good example of that. So what are some things that like maybe that neoliberal straitjacket doesn't allow us to imagine, um, but that could be really good solutions for the climate crisis? What kind of new institutions do we need? Things like that. Well, I mentioned earlier that during the war, we Canada created 28 crown corporations to expedite the mass production and deployment of the equipment that was needed. I think we need that again. I think we need to be conducting, an, like we did in the war, an inventory of how many uh, electric heat pumps and solar arrays and wind turbines and electric buses, et cetera, et cetera, we're going to need to 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 um, decarbonize our society. And then we would imagine a new generation of public enterprises, federal, provincial, municipal, indigenous, that would mass produce and deploy that technology at scale. I think there's other public institutions, though, that we could also imagine. There's there's two in particular that relate very much to inequality that I propose in the book and that we campaign on in the Climate Emergency Unit. One is for a new federal transfer to the provinces, a just transition transfer, uh, to help pay for all of this climate infrastructure that we need. The other is, is an idea for uh, what I call a, the Youth Climate Corps. Can you tell me a little bit about how the Climate Emergency Unit got started and what it uh, is aiming to achieve. Well, the, the unit uh, derives from the book. Uh, the book came out two and a half years ago. Uh, you know, I've given about 250 talks across the country with the book, uh, almost all virtually. Uh, but I've also met with political leaders across the country, federal and provincial and municipal. The message has been well received. Those have been fun conversations. But the truth of the matter is nothing will come of them. If they aren't backed up by a, a drumbeat, a campaign to build pressure behind these genuine emergency ideas. And so I realized I, I needed a, an institutional home again to campaign on these ideas and to, br and to bring coalitions together around these ideas. And so David Suzuki and Tara Cullis gave me a home uh, in their institute, the David Suzuki Institute. And we launched this idea of the Climate Emergency Unit. Uh, it is by design a five-year project. It's not a new permanent thing. The, the model seeks to communicate the message, which is that it's an emergency. And we have to meet it now in, in the first half of this decade. Um, and so that it's just structured to live on the, in the first half of this decade. And the model is twofold, really. One is we need, you know, all these groups pulling in a similar direction. And, and so it seeks to create coalition tables behind emergency ideas, federally, provincially, sectorally. Uh, and, and the second piece of it is that we're not going to win if the call is only emanating from the traditional environmental movement. Um, we need to try to bring 
this climate emergency framework to health leaders, faith leaders, labor leaders, and uh, arts and culture leaders. And so that's what we've been doing. Okay. So it's it's sort of also about engaging a broader uh, swath of society than is typically covered under environmental movements. Who are some of the... Uh, what are some of the sort of initiatives under that that you've been been working on so far? Well, so we're closing in on two and a half years of the project. Uh, we initiated what's now the BC Climate Emergency Campaign in, here in British Columbia. So there's about 30 organizations who sit around that virtual table and are all collaborating on an emergency agenda, pressing the provincial government. We were part of creating a similar thing in Ontario with the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign. We're part of creating a new Just Transition coalition in Newfoundland and Labrador. We were part of creating a, a climate emergency uh, alliance within the arts and culture sector. Um, we partnered with uh, with the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment and convinced them to go take lead on a national campaign to ban fossil fuel advertising. And then we have uh, these two campaigns that, 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 that we house that I mentioned earlier for the Just Transition Transfer and the Youth Climate Corps. Yeah, I'm curious about, um, let's maybe start with the Just Transition Transfer. Uh, I'm curious about sort of like why um, why a, a federal to provincial transfer and, and what do you see it accomplishing? Yeah, well, apologies in advance. It's kind of a wonky idea <laughs> to put on a bumper sticker. The, the idea for it actually emerged from an interview I did for the, for the book as part of the research with Gil McGowan, uh, who's the president of the Alberta Federation of Labor. Now, Gil's an interesting fella. As far as labor leaders goes, he, he he gets climate much better than most. But he was also asking in our interview that the rest of the country needs to appreciate that provinces like his uh, and Saskatchewan and Newfoundland have more heavy lifting to do. The task of converting their economies is more challenging given how reliant those provinces are on the export of, of fossil fuels, the extraction and export. And, you know, he was wondering whether or not we should tweak the uh, reform, the, the equalization formula to recognize that. And, and instead, you know, I was, I, I was saying to him, you know, the equalization, it's in the constitution. It's, it's very messy. It mostly works like it's supposed to. What if instead we imagined a new federal transfer purpose built for this task it would be big you know an audacious amount of money 25 say 25 billion a year but secondly it would be a little different from your typical federal transfers in that first of all instead of uh, divvying the money up by population we would divvy the money up by ghg emissions so mm -hmm. alberta for example is responsible for almost 40 percent 38 percent of canada's greenhouse gas emissions almost four times more than their share of the population. We would freeze that in time and we would say for the next 10 years, they'll get 38% of the money. But the second catch is that we wouldn't send the money to the provincial government. You know, they're not trusted on this. Uh, instead, we would create just transition agencies in every province and territory, or in some cases, directly send the money directly to indigenous communities. And those agencies could be jointly governed by the feds, the provinces, the municipal governments, indigenous governments, and they could allocate the money based on the climate plans in, in their province, because every province has a different greenhouse gas emissions profile, right? Their, their transition needs are different, and this would be a way of recognizing that. But mostly with 
this idea, trying to we're trying to crack what I call the confederation conundrum nut. <laughs> and this is sort of <laughs> it's a unique challenge for us in Canada. We're 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 the most decentralized federation in the industrialized world. And one of the challenges is that most of the climate infrastructure we need, you know, renewable energy, grid upgrades, uh, zero emission, affordable housing, transit, all of those assets, if you will, come under provincial or municipal or indigenous jurisdiction. But it's the feds who by far and away have the greatest capacity to, to pay. And so here's a new transformative idea that recognizes the two pieces of that, gets the money from the feds, and then allocates it uh, in those local ways. Gotcha. So there would be a way for um, local priorities to be recognized um, at the same time as sort of the allocation of money would make sense for the scale of the task. But it also then speaks to, you know, that earlier marker I mentioned around leave no one behind. Part mm-hmm. of what has been holding us back. Like, why do our governments keep ending up approving new fossil fuel infrastructure in these? And part of the, I think it's because we have yet to make a compelling counteroffer to all of these communities and people who feel economically and uh, reliant on these industries. And the just transition transfer would be this brash, bold way of doing just that. Make the counteroffer. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's notable that um, what you're talking about is sort of deliberately wider than like just transition as just reskilling oil sands workers. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. That's a really important point, actually. I mean, we, we're seeing from the feds uh, this new sustainable jobs plan which is way too modest, but also it's only speaking to what you just mentioned. It's it's a bit of retooling support, you know, a, a bit of retraining, a bit of income support for retraining. That's all necessary. But mostly what people want to see is the goddamn jobs. <laughs> and this this is a, a brash amount of money to actually spend on climate infrastructure and employ thousands of people. All right. What about the Youth Climate Corps? Uh, what's what's the idea for that one? So to me, the Youth Climate Corps is the the sister idea to the one we just talked about, and it speaks to those one of those lessons out of the Second World War. I, I'm frequently like uh, everyone's weird uncle on this stuff, but uh, but back in the war, <laughs> um, uh, you know, from a population uh, of about 11 million Canadians, over a million of them enlisted, which is pretty mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah. And of those, 64% of them were under the age of 21. And this was a whole generation of young people who left their farms, delayed their careers, deferred their studies, because they understood the emergency to be in the moment and they were and they signed up to serve. I am convinced, and I say this, you know, giving many talks, particularly many young people and you know, post-secondary audiences. There are thousands and thousands of young people today who once again get that the emergency is in the in the moment now. They understand the emergency. They are ready to serve and and, and step up to our collective defense. And we have yet to issue them an invitation to do so. You know, instead we we say, you know, stand by, we'll we'll, we'll let you know when we're when we've got something so different from the World War II public response. Uh, so this 
The YCC would be a way to say to all of those young people, if you get the emergency, you want to spend two years getting trained up, meeting this moment, getting, you know, learning the skills you need, uh, helping with emergency response, helping with climate infrastructure, then we have a place for you. No one will be turned away. And that's different from, you know, there's all kinds of federal and provincial funding for student summer jobs and this, that, and the other thing and different training programs. They all tend to be small. They all tend to be short-term. I'm imagining two years here. And you you generally have to apply, you know, for a, and they're oversubscribed. The only national youth employment and training program we have that is genuinely barrier-free right now is the military. Uh, and if you're particularly a young person from a marginalized community, that may be the only offer around. And I think we can do better. So what are some of the like jobs or projects that um, people could work on if they join the Youth Climate Corps? Well, I was hinting at them. I mean, I, I, I think there's a few different categories. First of all, there's getting skilled up in in the climate infrastructure that we need. So it could be in building retrofits and renewable energy, uh, you know, building new transportation systems, et cetera. So in that sense, the two years could be a bit of a red seal apprenticeship program for a lot of those things that in turn, the just transition transfer could then provide steady employment for many years to come. Uh, so that's why I see these things as twinned up. Another category is just around emergency response in the, in the face of of wildfires and floods and so on. Right now, it's often the the, the military that gets tapped for that. Uh, and from from what we've heard from some military leaders, they don't want the job. It could also be helping to build community resilience in the face of these these events that are going to keep coming. You know, imagine in a heat dome. If there if there was a whole brigade of young people who actually went door to door to make sure that people were OK, you know, how many people might have been saved if we'd had that in the heat dome that hit this province two years ago? And then it can also be low carbon care work, working with young people and seniors and children. So it could take could take any of those forms. Yeah, I'm curious about how um, do you see this as also playing a role in terms of, you know, Youth today are experiencing a lot of like climate grief and anxiety. Do you think this could help with that? Absolutely, I do. And I've written about that. The survey data on exactly what you said is very compelling. And I think it's that dissonance of hearing the news, understanding the emergency, and then and then seeing this, frankly, pitiful response to date that your own leaders and and the adults in the, in your life, this 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 incongruence causes men, mental angst. Uh, and so here would be a way to say, if you get it, we're ready for you, and 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 we and we invite you to help us meet this. There too, there's an interesting comparison with World War II. You know, when the when the Blitz was on the bombing of London, the psychologists of the day thought that would cause great mental anguish. And it was, of course, horrific and terrifying. And yet, many people remember it as one of the most special times of their lives um, because they were invited to join in common cause in confronting it. And there's something very healthy about that, but that has been missing in, in the present. And I also think 
you know, sometimes the way I talk about the Youth Climate Corps, particularly when I'm talking with young people, is um, and they because they know this to be true. The climate crisis is coming for them. It's going to enlist them one way or another at a time of their choosing or not. It's going to press them into it's going to test who they are. And you can either get enlisted, you know, at a time not of your choosing, uh, not on your terms in a kind of reactive mode. Or you can try to preemptively confront it. And that's what the YCC invitation is. Yeah, I'm wondering about like, um, I know you had written it in the context of World War II, but uh, have you been thinking at all about sort of like the war in Ukraine? Um, and like, it seems to me at least that there's sort of a, like a latent demand in the Canadian public to be responsive to crises like this. All of these crises serve as as yet a reminder of how quickly we can move when we set our minds to it. You know, when I wrote the book, it was before all of these things. And I thought we I was trying to excavate this 80 year old story as a reminder. Then we had COVID. And then again, as you say, with the war in Ukraine, all of these things, you know, like quickly imposing uh, sanctions, freezing the assets of the of the oligarchs you know, marshalling all of these resources, all of these things that a few weeks earlier we were told can't be done, suddenly are possible. Uh, So all of these things liberate our imagination. All emergencies invite us to decide what kind of people we want to be, individually and collectively. And it's just that on climate, we're caught in the early months of World War II, historians called the phony war. We're caught in the phony war of this fight. And it's it's no fun presiding in a phony war period where you're told something major is happening, but you've but in your bones you don't see it. But they won't last. These times don't last. Yeah, on, on that point, I'm I'm curious about the conversations that you're having with labor leaders and other sort of non-traditional environmental groups. Um, are you noticing that there's a shift in mindset? And if so, what might be sort of what are the things that people are connecting to the climate crisis that makes them feel that it's not a phony war? Well, first of all, I mean, as I said earlier, I've given many, many talks with the book, and it's been super well received in a very gratifying way. And in part, in part, it's been a revelation to re- to appreciate how resonant this 80-year-old story remains for so many people and so many institutions. And when I'm giving talks, I always get to make a little mischief with different audiences, whether it's an audience of labor people or business people or journalists or architects or farmers. They all have some connection to this World War II story. And I pull their story from that story and talk about these people who are part of their legacy, who are important to their their sense of who who they are and who they greatly admire. And I just get to say, look, uh, well, here we are again. And who do you want to be? And so that's been resonant. I think the book came along to at a moment when people realized the approach we've been taking for two decades just wasn't working and a new approach was needed. The challenge has been you've got all of these institutions outside the climate movement, you know, medical associations and and faith groups and labor groups who who've passed climate emergency motions. They all know they need to be doing more. And none of them know what that should look like. They're grasping. And in part, you know, when I said earlier that our political leaders have have been caught in this straitjacket of neoliberal thinking, the truth is we all have. And the most insidious legacy of 40 years of neoliberalism 
is you know beyond the tax cuts and the spending cuts and the privatization and the deregulation is the sapping of our imagination and of our our faith and our capacity to do great things together and so i'm just trying to come along with these reminders of oh this is what is possible when we bust out of the shackles of this particular dominant mode of thinking that has characterized the last few decades. Yeah, um, I'm curious about whether like, are there any, maybe it's city governments or provincial governments that you think are maybe getting close to meeting the scale of the crisis? <laughs> well, in in Canada, I, I would, so first of all, at a national level, I don't see any country that hits all six of the climate emergency markers I talked about earlier. That said, there are many countries that are kicking our ass in Canada. If you look at the G7 countries, we have the worst record among them. Every other G7 country, particularly the UK and Germany, does substantially better than we do. So they're not in emergency mode, but they're certainly doing better. Within Canada, no government, federally or provincially, of any political stripe hits the markers. It's not just that they don't hit all of the markers. They don't hit any of the markers mm. of being in emergency mode on climate. Again, I would say many of them in the first year of the pandemic that pandemic hit the markers on COVID, but not on climate. But you also asked in your question about municipal governments. I think there are some municipal governments that are starting to hit the markers. Um, I'm a little biased in my response. I live in Vancouver. Uh, and my wife is is city councilor Christine Boyle, who in early 2019 introduced the first climate emergency motion in English Canada. And out of that, Vancouver has what I would say is an is an actual climate emergency action plan uh, for municipal government. They were spending what it takes. Um, they're not now under its current mm -hmm. government. They were for a time. They were creating new institutions. Uh, and, you know, neighborhood energy utilities, that kind of thing. The key thing, though, is mark what I call marker three, moving from voluntary to mandatory. In any city, a majority of the emissions is the, is the natural so-called natural gas we burn in buildings. In Vancouver, out of that work, new buildings as of last year are not permitted to use fossil fuels for space and water heating. Now, that's 10 years sooner than the provincial target. That's emergency. That's what I mean by starting to hit emergency markers. Wow, that would that would be huge if, if that was something we did across the country. Good. So we can't, by the way, the CU campaigns on that too. Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, so I'm curious um, for, um, just to sort of wrap up, um, for a listener that is really keen to get involved, um, what do they do to get involved with either the climate emergency unit or um, if there's another call to action you'd like to put forward? Well, they can certainly uh, follow the climate emergency unit and sign up for our newsletter. So our website's just climateemergencyunit.ca. And if they sign up for the newsletter, you know, it's a good way of just staying informed of all of these campaigns that we've been talking about. And there's links there to other or partner organizations that we that we work with on these campaigns. So there's so many ways. I think for anyone listening, the key is the commonality with all of these emergencies is that they cannot be prosecuted and won as individuals. They're inherently collective projects. And in particular, 
when you are trying to achieve speed and scale in the narrow window of time that we have, it has to be state-led. This is the remarkable thing about the Second World War is they embraced this state leadership and business leaders at the time even recognized the need for that and disabused their fellow business leaders that it could be any other way. So it's a it's an inherently political project. And that means, you know, while it's important for all of us to do as individuals what we need to do and stop using fossil fuel vehicles and get the fossil fuels out of our houses and so on. If we're hoping that enough people will voluntarily do that, we're fried. We need people acting with others, pressing our political leaders into emergency mode and forcing them to be the people we need them to be. So if if you're wondering what kind of action should I be taking, it has to be that kind, one way or another, it has to be that kind of political action. Thank you so much for for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, And I I think it's really good conversation. So thank you so much. Fab, I hope everyone enjoyed that. I certainly did. Kristen, thank you so much for organizing that. Our regular show is coming back. Uh, Kristen and I are going uh, on vacation to Port Hardy on the island of Vancouver Island. And uh, we're going to be doing some brainstorming there. So if you guys have any, uh, I don't know, requests, hit us up, but we're probably not going to take them. So (laughs) (laughs) you know what? No, we love to hear suggestions. I I feel like by the time this episode comes out, we'll at least be part of the way through recording the season. But having said that, Sometimes we're looking for some inspo on the fly. And also (laughs) we plan to have future seasons after this. So if there's an idea that you would really like us to scrutinize, talk to an expert about, explain, do like a chaotic book club episode about where we make Robbie read a book he hates. (laughs) (laughs) Please hit us up with your ideas. We love to hear them. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. So in the interim, when you're missing us in your feeds, you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. Uh, big fan of all of them. I've been really enjoying Canada Reimagined. So everyone should check that one out. And obviously, I'll always shut out Tech Won't Save Us. <laughs> but Paris doesn't need our help. <laughs> and hey, we were on Big Shiny Takes a few months ago. So oh, yeah. I go to their back catalog. Love, love those guys. Love Big <laughs> Shiny Takes. Everyone should listen to that too. Yes. Yeah. It's. I think it's a really refreshing podcast because sometimes you just want to laugh while people hate read an article that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always do. So. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>